All right, hello everyone. This is Evie Lupine. Welcome back. And today we are continuing our series of interviews courtesy of Kinkfest. Uh, this is actually our fourth interview. I can't believe it. We are almost done with the series already. And today uh, we will be talking with Stella Harris and we will be going over better communication processes in kink. Uh, so Stella, if you wouldn't mind, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, let us know how you got started in kink and uh, what your background is as an educator. Absolutely. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm Stella and I have been kinky in my personal life since I was a teenager, at least, you know, before I had words for any of these things. And I've been in the public kink scene here in Portland for probably about the last six years or so long and securitous journey, but uh, about five years ago, I went and got some certifications as I was going down this path as a career rather than a hobby. So I became a certified intimacy educator uh, as well as a certified professional coach. So as an educator, I do everything from teaching classes, um, straight up sex ed type classes, to kink classes at events like KinkFest and also other kink conferences nationally. And then I also do a lot of writing about sex and kink topics. And I coach individuals and couples out of my little office here. So it's, it's a little bit of everything, really. There's never a dull moment. Well, I think that's really great. I like the continuity between, let's say, vanilla sex education to kink education because there are so many people who are maybe not quite vanilla maybe not quite kinky like full-on bdsm leather folk uh and it's it's nice to have somebody who kind of knows the whole process and especially when it comes to a topic uh like communication which is a skill you take in the in the vanilla side of your relationship the bdsm side of your relationship and then obviously uh being able to mesh the two together yeah, exactly. I think that the lines are not as firmly drawn as we sometimes think. I, I think it's kind of squishy, especially with the term kink. I think it ends up applying to whatever is a little bit edgy for the person saying it. Um, and so I'm never even really quite sure which of my topics are considered kinky or not. You know, I've had kink conferences, including KinkFest. Last year at KinkFest, I taught a pegging class. I just taught that one uh, down in San Francisco for Dark Odyssey um, and something like that. I think it really depends who you ask. Is that kink? Is that just sex? Uh, who knows? <laughs> so you get to decide for yourself. A little bit of both. Yeah, especially when with pegging, I can definitely see that has several different implications in several different ways. I'm sure you could use that in both vanilla and in kink life. Uh, so where I would like to start off our conversation in better communication processes in kink is what are some of the most common pitfalls that you've noticed that people fall into in communication, um, both in terms of how people communicate in scenes and then also just uh, for lack of a better term, everyday communication, the communication that happens inside of DS relationships or inside of BDSM dynamics? Yeah, I think we run into a lot of the same pitfalls across the board. I think that something that happens in kink and BDSM, and, and I have been guilty of this as well, is assuming that people in those lifestyles are necessarily better communicators or mm. have more defined terms around some of this. I think sometimes we fall into more shorthand or more assumptions because we assume that people within those communities are going to be on the same page as us more so than we might in the default or vanilla world. And especially when what you're doing is more physically or emotionally risky uh, the downfalls of making assumptions and being wrong can be even more dangerous than in a vanilla relationship. So I really see people, and, and this is another across the board one, um, you know, when I'm teaching vanilla sex ed classes, people say that they're afraid that talking will ruin the mood. And when I'm teaching communication at a kink conference, I inevitably get people in DS dynamics who 
not only are afraid of the usual talking will ruin the mood, but they're afraid that certain kinds of talking or negotiation will impede their dynamic. There can be this assumption that someone on the submissive side can't both be submissive and speak up for their needs or speak up for their desires. So finding ways to juggle those things seems to be tricky for lots of folks. I would definitely agree with that. And it seems like especially in the last few months, um, both with the vanilla world that, you know, everywhere going through, you know, the Me Too movement, Time's Up, like all of these conversations around how to ask for consent, how, how consent should be given and not making assumptions about what people want or don't want. But in the King community, I've heard a lot of stories around, you know, well, they never said red. <laughs> uh, so yeah. it must have been okay. Or saying, you know, blaming the bottom or the submissive for like, well, you should have used your safe word, but then using plain English communication and, and not, being heard as a result of that. But I think that's maybe something we can get into um, a bit later. But I have heard um, from a lot of my friends that BDSM and and being kinky and, and being active in the lifestyle made them a better communicator because of the tools that it gave them around negotiation and, and asking for consent and just being so thorough and everything and having that expectation. But I do agree that a lot of times because so many people have those stories of, well, now that I'm in kink or into BDSM, I have all these additional tools that I can use to ask for things or to tell my partner about what I enjoy or what I want to do for a scene. But then you assume that people are going to use those tools and they don't always. Or there's still so many other ways, even within those tools, that you can mess up and the conversation process, talk past your partner, uh, not fully understand and then not asking for clarification, being afraid to speak up, uh, being afraid to ask for a clarification, you know, all that stuff definitely still happens even when you're quote unquote better um, with communication. Absolutely. I would say as a community, my experience has been that folks in the kink and BDSM communities, as well as folks in the polyamorous or open relationship communities probably on average, you know, have a higher proficiency with communication because the stuff that they're doing requires more of it and is kind of tricky. Um, but again, it's not, it's not a sure thing. You can't necessarily count on that. You still need to use all of the same common sense tools you would when you're feeling out any new person or any new situation. And I know one particular area of this that I got a lot of questions about from people um, when I was announcing this particular topic was, as a submissive, how can you request scenes or make your voice heard? Because um, I feel like a lot of submissives, even if they're not in the DS dynamic, uh, tend to have very specific modes of communication and very... Uh, specific understandings of how they think they have to communicate um, in order to, I, I'm not sure exactly how to, how to phrase it, but most submissives seem to have sort of um, stigmas around being too loud, being bossy, being told they're topping from the bottom, you know, being afraid of hitting all those things that makes them feel like they're not being truly submissive and how to maintain one being a submissive, but then also, uh, making sure that your voice is heard without overstepping boundaries, both as somebody who's maybe negotiating just for pickup play and then also for maybe wanting to make changes in a long-term DS dynamic. Sure. Well, first of all, I would say if anybody ever says to you that you're not being a real submissive or a true submissive, anything like that, I would say that's a glaring red flag and you should run away. Um, but certainly, I, I think that that's something people can feel worried about. Um, even that the term topping from the bottom, I have a huge problem with. And too often, I've seen that used to shut people down when really they're just communicating in a way that is absolutely appropriate. Um, so I think the way that we treat some of that needs to shift a bit in the scene. But also, I understand that for people, even on the submissive side, it feels like it is 
going against the dynamic that they want to speak up for themselves in certain ways. I think what is really valuable as much as possible is to have the negotiation piece happen with the other person as much as possible in an egalitarian way, negotiating as equals and finding a way to do that, sometimes meeting in a neutral environment, you know, at a coffee shop, somewhere in public, somewhere that is not at all a kink space, and to have that sort of bookend that conversation as one that is happening between equals. Even people who've been in a dynamic for a long term often need to have those little communication breaks in sort of a neutral place uh, because people always need to have relationship check-ins and see how everything is going. Another one that can be really valuable is journaling. Someone can keep a journal um, either about the relationship in general or you know, a post-scene sort of debriefing journal and they can choose to let their partner look at that. And so the other person can look and see how are they feeling about scenes? What are they liking? What are they not liking? And if the, the person doesn't have to say it directly to the other person's face, sometimes that can feel a little bit easier if they've, if they put it in writing. I think journaling is really invaluable because it allows you to say what you're thinking in a lot more honest way than I think most of us are able to do just talking to our partners directly, like maybe unintentionally, but I think a lot of times people do tend to, um, if they've had a bad experience, minimize it, or if they've had a good experience, uh, either way oversell it or not be able to like get to all of the finer points about what exactly they enjoyed about it so much. Whereas writing kind of allows you the ability to be more introspective about your experience and share it a bit more honestly, at least for most people that I've noticed. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful tool for that reason. Um, I am a discovery writer. I think a lot of people are. So sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking or feeling or wanting to say until I'm actually putting it on the page and that you know next sentence comes out and sort of surprises me as it's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be a really good way to to dig down and find some of those feelings. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, topping from the bottom. And that's something that I also have a lot of passion around in terms of how the term is currently used in the community versus what I think would possibly be a healthier way of kind of getting the same idea across. So uh, I would love to hear your thoughts around using that term and maybe, um, you know, what would be a more effective way of, of communicating a lot of the feelings that people have when they reflexively tell somebody they're topping from the bottom or maybe when they use it as a put down against another submissive or a play partner or anyone really for that matter. I think if people are saying topping from the bottom, it indicates a failure of having talked in advance about what kind of communication styles that people like. I think that's important Mm -hmm. both in a relationship and negotiating for a scene to talk about how much is being negotiated in advance, how much and what kind of feedback do you want during a scene. And of course, no matter what, it's always okay to say no or stop at any time or to need to you know, modify something for the sake of safety. Absolutely. I'm not saying you shouldn't communicate those things during a scene. But if one person is giving a lot of feedback during a scene and the other person was expecting them to just silently put up with everything that's happening, Mm. that is something that they should have thought about in advance and talked about. Because sometimes it could be something as simple as you know, somebody's bottoming style or submissive style being kind of bratty and the other person not being into that. It doesn't mean either of them is in the wrong. It just means they might not be a great fit for playing with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So typically, I think it's important to talk about what kind of feedback do you like? How do you like to check in during play? How much do you talk during play? And this is something I always ask people because I need to know if, you know, if they're the kind of person who goes really silent and doesn't give a lot of feedback, I need to know that in advance so I know that it isn't that something is wrong when we're playing. Yeah, because one person's deep subspace looks like another person's complete panic mode. Uh, (laughs) So what is good for one is not good for the other. And I definitely would also encourage people 
if at all possible, in every situation, let your partner very thoroughly know what your communication style is like. Um, but besides just in scenes and kind of moving on a little bit from topping from the bottom, if you are in a long-term relationship, let's say, with a kink partner, and you don't necessarily have to be in a, in a DS dynamic, but you do BDSM together, and you do have a very different communication style, or you have perhaps misunderstood each other's communication style, how would you resolve that? How would you be able to compromise? Because what I have noticed a lot of times is um, you have submissives, particularly those who are younger or, or less experienced, um, needing to know in great detail what is about to happen in a scene or needing to have a lot more input into what's going on during a scene, whereas um, a lot of dominants, particularly older, more experienced dominants, feel that it kind of ruins the moment or ruins their energy to have to talk about their play so extensively and feel like they should sort of be allowed to just do it, um, particularly with somebody that they're in a relationship with. I think it's less of a problem when people are negotiating for pickup play or with a new partner. But when you've been with somebody for a while, a lot of D-types tend to feel a bit more like, well, why do I have to check in all the time? Why can't I just like make a scene and then run with it? And I think that's very similar to what happens in a lot of vanilla sexual encounters is men are not really like taught to check in all the time or feel like checking in ruins the mood or kills their energy or whatever. Uh, it's another one of those things that I think has a lot of parallels between vanilla and BDSM and the uh, spectrum in between those two points. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is that communication style piece again. I have run into both of those things. I've been on both sides of that and been kind of surprised when I run into, you know, something that's not what I'm used to. Uh, I, a few kink fests ago, I was demo bottoming for another presenter. They asked me to send their hard limits list. And after I did said, I could tell you what we're going to do, but it'll be more interesting if it's a surprise. Uh, and I just went with it. So I had no idea what we were going to do. I just knew that she had my hard limits list and we wouldn't do those things. And I kind of went with it. Uh, and that is sort of one of those moments where with me as a teacher, uh, I'm very do as I say, not as I do. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that method. Um, but I think people who've been around the block a few times and more experienced players will sometimes use that kind of shorthand or not do as much checking in or want that kind of surprise. And for people who are newer, I think it is completely reasonable to want to know everything that's about to happen to them. That isn't you know, being toppy or ruining the scene, you can't really consent to something if it's not informed consent and if you don't know what you're signing up for and what you're agreeing to. And so when people are playing, I think I think there's a piece that people miss sort of pre-negotiation before you actually get into the, like, what are we going to do? What are the details of it? What toys can I use? I think there needs to be a conversation even before that where you're just determining if the two of you are a good fit to play together at all. You know, do you like mixing sexuality with your kink or not? And what kind of communication styles do you have? And what is the energy of a scene you're looking for? If someone wants something really hard and brutal and somebody else wants something really slow and sensual, that's going to be a real mismatch. And if they skip mm -hmm. the feelings talk and just go straight to negotiating for a caning, that's one of those places where people get into a lot of trouble with communication, whether it's kinky or vanilla, is people assume their definition of a word is obvious. So anything from caning to spanking to even when people say sex, well, what does sex even mean? And if we assume someone else has the same definition and we can be really surprised. And I see that, you know, if you have people going through a yes, no, maybe list, that's a great place to start. But if something just says spanking, that could mean love taps during sex, or that could mean someone hauling off and hitting you as hard as they possibly can. And again, neither person is wrong, but that is a mismatch where, you know, agreeing on a term like spanking is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. So making sure all those things are aligned in advance. When it comes to longer term relationships, I think 
you know, as people have learned each other better, they expect to not have to talk about everything as much. But if one of the people is someone who wants more of those levels of communication, then that's probably been a mismatch from day one. And that's something they need to sort of sit down and talk about and figure out how they're going to work around that. Um, because some people are never going to want to be surprised with, with sex things or kink things. And that's perfectly okay. What I am thinking about as you're talking about this is I've noticed a lot of times people have difficulty talking about the feeling part of BDSM. They can only really talk about the technical part of it or only really are able to talk about the technical part of it. And they don't think emotions uh, need to be part of the conversation at all. Are there any tools that you could give people or talk about that people who struggle with expressing their emotions or being able to talk about this kind of ethereal part of a BDSM scene, the atmosphere, the energy um, for people who aren't used to having those types of conversations? Yeah, there are exercises that people can do around that. And with some of it, um, you know, you can get worksheets with feelings words. Um, I have something like that in, uh, in my book that's coming out. Basically, like a yes, no, maybe list, but instead of a list of activities, it's just a list of feelings words. So everything from soft and gentle and held and sensual, you know, to rough and tight and start there, start at the things that are sort of physical sensations that have a corresponding fear feeling with them and think about that in their bodies that way. Um, and you can start thinking about you know, if you think back to things you've done in the past and think about what worked well or what didn't work and start finding patterns there. And that's something else that I think journaling can really help with. You know, if you want to think back to sort of what are your top five favorite scenes that you've been a part of and try, try to start writing down what were the essential elements of those. You know, maybe there was bondage in all of them. Maybe you were blindfolded in all of them. Um, and think about the other things that happened there. Were they someone with someone you had a close connection with? Were they pick up play? And to start trying to find the common elements and thinking back, how did you feel when that was happening? And that can then be a clue to how you want to feel in future scenes. Uh, but there's a reason that, you know, at, at, you know, in the hospital and in therapy offices, they have those you know, the smiley face charts with all of the feelings written under them, because people really have a hard time coming up with their feeling words around this. Uh, there's another sex educator, a good friend of mine, Kate Kenfield, developed something called tea and empathy cards. And it's like a deck of cards that has feelings words on it. And you can go through those and sort of lay them out, you know, the way you would do if you were doing, you know, a spread of tarot reading. And, and use that as sort of a way to help you through a feelings conversation. Um, so there are tools out there to, to help move you in that direction. When you're potentially thinking about entering into a BDSM or a kink relationship with somebody, obviously there's a lot of consideration that goes into that, especially in terms of, do you also want a romantic component? Do they want a romantic component? You know, what type of dynamic are you looking for? What level of power exchange? Where do you hope to go in, you know, 10 years? Those kinds of conversations. What kind of communication do you think is really necessary, like bare bones, this is what you need to be able to talk about in order to be able to form a healthy kink relationship and even determine if that's something that you can pursue with that person. Because obviously, not everybody that you are play partners with is somebody who is going to be a great DS partner for you, even if you have amazing scenes. Right. Every layer that you add is another layer of complexity. I mean, relationships already take a lot of that planning and negotiating and feeling out whether or not someone is the right partner for you. Adding kink and BDSM elements is another layer. If there's any openness, that's another layer. And certainly if you're adding power dynamics, that is yet another layer. I think there's a fear of scarcity overall, and especially, you know, the more pieces of the puzzle that you add, especially when you've got the kink pieces, it can feel like you're not going to find someone else who is into the things that you're into. And I think that that 
often leads people to feeling like they need to compromise when they find somebody who is into enough of the same stuff, especially the more obscure or niche they think their kink is. We can give some benefit of the doubt to the other people who are into that as well, because we don't think we'll find that piece again. But really, you need to screen just as carefully as you would for any other kind of relationship. So just like in, you know, vanilla world, you might be asking if people want to cohabitate or if people are interested in having children. And, you know, do you like to spend the holidays with family? Something like that. You know, when you're adding kink, you're potentially asking all of those questions if you're talking about, you know, being a life partner with someone who you're also doing kink and power exchange with. So you need to do all of that. And then on top of it, asking those sorts of questions about what kind of dynamic do you want? Do you only want a dynamic during play or during sex? Do you want something that's more 24-7? You know, what is that going to look like? How are you going to negotiate that on top of other life commitments and, you know, making sure that it doesn't affect family relationships or affect work relationships? Um, again, it, it needs to really be developed slowly over time. And I, I definitely get nervous when I see people um, pairing off, you know, in serious power dynamic relationships within a couple of weeks of meeting each other. Um, I think there really has to be a getting to know you phase where you decide how much you trust someone and how much of a fit they are for you in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And as well, I think there's a layer of complexity when people are not just negotiating for a new relationship that's going to be kink-focused, but when people are trying to take an existing vanilla relationship and turn it into one that is more BDSM-focused, um, especially because that does tend to be led by one of the two partners as opposed to... There's very rarely, at least that I've noticed, a situation where both partners are equally enthusiastic about starting kink if they've had like a 10-year-long vanilla relationship. Um, would you have any particular advice for people who are looking to make that transition from a vanilla relationship uh, to a kink one, assuming, just for the sake of setting up parameters, that they are in a monogamous relationship and don't necessarily have the opportunity uh, to pursue kink outside of their current relationship? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the couples that, that come to see me in my office for coaching are in a situation like that where they're introducing kink. And I think you'll often see like, yes, maybe it was one person's idea or somebody brought it up first, but that doesn't mean that the other person doesn't end up an enthusiastic participant. I think what often happens there is there, I mean, there's a can be a mismatch, not just in interest necessarily, but in experience or knowledge. And that's especially true when the partner who who isn't the one who initially thought to do it sometimes he needs to play a little bit of catch up on the education front. And so a lot of times with these folks, you know, I have them watch porn or read erotica, go to classes in town, um, sort of just get the background and education piece started. Uh, but there's a lot of things you can do. You know, if you have that basis of a relationship that you're used to, people can have a hard time sort of breaking out of that and into a new space. And it can be really helpful to have some sort of signifier of when you are doing the kink piece. So having something to bookend those kink experiences, whether it's um, you use a different room of your house for it, or you're doing something like lighting candles or using different lighting, or maybe you're putting a collar on somebody, or maybe you are going to events in town. You know, even if you're monogamous, you can still go and play in public spaces and public dungeons. Uh, but finding a way to set that time aside. Um, and oftentimes people will, uh, just like, you know, getting into costume for a play, people will have something that helps them signify that role that they're putting on. Obviously, uh, you know, a collar is a very typical one for so the person on the bottom or submissive side. You know, for the first person on the top, sometimes, you know, a particular outfit or a pair of shoes or, you know, some kind of makeup you know, helps them find that powerful self as well. Mm -hmm. Because if, especially at first, it can feel a little bit more, you know, on the role play side and how are they going to find that role and have that feel natural. Um, and then there's the learning curve piece as well, because some of this stuff, of course, is dangerous. Um, so finding ways to start with things that 
are less physically dangerous. So, you know, starting with um, telling somebody what to do and playing with sort of emotional power dynamics, um, light bondage, something like that, you know, before they start, you know, doing impact play or doing anything more extreme that can have more risks to it. I'm glad that at least now there's a lot of tools out there for people who are wanting to get started in BDSM, being able to go to classes, being part of the local community, and just having so many tools from from books to porn to even pretty good stuff online now where people can share things about BDSM with their partner and you know, not have to try and find the, like, hidden ad in the newspaper for, like, the local person that has, like, a BDSM dungeon that they can go to uh, for events or something like that. Yeah, when I first started out, um, when I was, I grew up in LA, and when I was a teenager, I mean, <laughs> it was those ads in the paper. I mean, that's how I started. My first munches I found through ads in the paper, and they were at coffee shops, um, and that's the way I first found the community, so... People have it a lot easier now that we can just hop on FetLife and see what's going on in town. Um, but yeah, 20 years ago, it was a different story altogether. That would be interesting to talk about would be communication over FetLife, actually. Being able to communicate with partners, um, being able to potentially find play partners. Like if you're going to an event, like if you're going to somewhere like Kingfest from out of town and being able to use that to kind of start negotiations for a scene. Is that something that you would necessarily recommend? Or in general, how would you recommend using FetLife as a communication tool? Because I think a lot of people don't necessarily know how to use FetLife uh, in the way that FetLife is best utilized. Yeah, I mean, like any tool, it's it's not perfect, certainly. Um, I actually, I just did an article for Fetish.com about some of this, you know, sort of early communication online. And I, I also teach a class called Modern Dating, which is about, you know, the general online communication in, in the dating app age. And FetLife is really similar. I think, again, people, I think, fall into a trap of thinking because we're all kinky that people get a benefit of the doubt that you wouldn't extend to other strangers. So I think the first thing about any online communication is just keep your guard up and use common sense, um, especially early on. Don't give out personal information. Don't share too much at first. But I do think it's a great tool, you know, for Kinkfest in particular, every year there is a cruising thread, people post what they're interested in, and then folks can get in touch. And that's a great way to, to make fantasies happen that you've been thinking about for a while, to find people who are into that thing that you're into. You know, there's so many people attending and such a huge dungeon, it is a great place to make those fantasies happen. But when you're having those early conversations, you need to ask a lot of questions, especially if it's you know, someone coming from out of town and you're not going to meet before the event, don't agree to anything in advance. You know, agree to meet them in the space, you know, grab a coffee, maybe go to a class together, but have all the same sort of screening chats you would have if you were meeting someone for a date off of Tinder or something like that. You know, don't just go straight into the dungeon for your scene, but meet them in person first. Really trust your gut about your vibe for somebody. And I know a lot of people say this, and I don't think enough people actually do it, but get references, especially if it's from somebody out of town. You know, ask them for references, look at who their play partners have been, and actually talk to those folks and see what people have to say. You know, most people who've been in the scene for a while will understand that that's something that you need to feel safe and, and will have somebody that you can talk to. If someone doesn't have anyone you can talk to, you know, maybe they're saying it's because they're new, but... I would be very careful around that and really look out for that. Um, and that can be another reason to, you know, make sure you're meeting them in a very public part of the, of the event and making sure your friends know who you're meeting and what your plan is. Not being alone with someone, you know, there is a hotel associated with the event, but, you know, there's a 30,000 square foot dungeon. There's plenty of places to play there. So there's no reason to go and be alone with somebody right away when you're just meeting them from the internet. Yeah, and that definitely goes not just for meeting people at events, but meeting people in the local community, especially like, I know I get so many people who are, who tell me I live in a small town, there's nowhere around here that's king-friendly that we can meet, 
you can talk about kink stuff at a dull roar in a coffee shop <laughs> or in a bookstore or anywhere that's public is really better than meeting in somebody's private space. So you have to make it a neutral level playing field as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. There are a few towns that are so small that there is zero kink community. Sometimes it just means the meetups are happening in somebody's house and you need to find the right people or it means you need to, you know, take a 30 minute or an hour train ride to the nearest big city that has something going on. Uh, but these days there's usually something. Yeah. Now kind of going back a little bit to partner communication. Um, and especially again with people who maybe are not used to talking about their emotions and, and feelings or maybe aren't used to meta communicating. Um, how can you early on, find out what your partner's communication style is or help them figure out what it is so they can tell you what it is so you don't end up with long-term issues around, you know, the kinds of scenes that you want to do, the kind of energy that you want to have, how you want to talk about talking about things uh, or being able to talk about things that, you know, come up in the relationship. Is, is there a good way that people can discover that about their partners or be able to tell their partners what their communication style is without necessarily having to go through, you know, two or three months of, of figuring that out and stumbling through it. Well, I think with some of it, there is just a getting to know you period that is kind of unavoidable. And just like if you were doing vanilla dating and maybe your first couple of dates are meeting for coffee, you know, if it's kink stuff, you know, maybe your first play date, again, is something more mild and something less intense and certainly in public. So you still have that getting to know you piece. Um, in terms of knowing your communication style, some people are very self-aware and will know more of that. And other people aren't going to know the answers to those questions yet. That, I mean, that's the real problem when you're trying to have this conversation is some people don't know. Um, one of the things that I run into a lot with clients is, um, you know, some people process very quickly and some people process really slowly. And so if a big conversation comes up, one person might be ready to hash it all out right there and then, and the other person might need to go away, away and think about it for a day or two and then come back and have the conversation. And that's one of those places that I think people can really get into trouble. And that's one that you can ask people about and say, you know, when you've had conflicts in the past, do you like to talk about it right away, right when it's happening? Or do you like to take a little bit of time and consider your feelings and then come back and have a conversation? And with a lot of these things, it's not necessarily a deal breaker. It's not to say that you can't be in a relationship with someone who has a different communication style from you. It's more a matter of making sure that you know where there are those differences so that you can deal with that in the moment when conflict comes up. Because sometimes a conflict will happen one person will say, hey, I really need a minute, and the other person won't want to stop. They'll, you know, they already have heightened emotions, and they want to work through it right in that second. So that sort of thing is a great to have a, a plan in advance of what do you want to do when, when conflict arises? How do you want to handle that? Um, are we going to hash it out right when it happens, or do we want to give it a day and then go and have a chat in a neutral space and see if you can sort of have... Um, you know, your emergency evacuation plan, but for difficult conversations. I mean, you know, you were saying earlier that people aren't always all that in touch with their feelings. And that's another one that comes up a lot. You know, someone might ask, oh, how are you feeling about such and such? And the other person might either say, I don't know, or say they're feeling fine. And then a day later realize, oh, I'm, I'm not fine. I have feelings about this. And that is, you know, akin to the slow processing piece. Um, but sometimes it takes a little bit of time for someone's feelings to catch up with them. And that can cause a bit of trouble as well. But communication is a skill. Like, yes, people have different styles, but a lot of things about communicating clearly and with compassion, that's a skill that you can learn. So I don't think that different styles necessarily means a relationship can't happen there. I think as long as people have a commitment to learning new skills and treating their partner with compassion, a lot of this stuff can simply be worked through together. And for those people who have that mismatch where they process right away and they're ready to talk about it then and there, and then their partner is a bit of a slower processor, besides just saying, okay, in this moment, are we going to decide if we talk about it later or not? 
I I would believe because this is the kind of processor I am myself as I process very quickly and I want to talk about it right then. Do you have any advice for people who just have the need to talk about it in the moment, but their partner really does need to wait a day or two where they can work through their processing without necessarily stepping over their partner's need to be able to wait? Yeah, exactly. And that's another one that it's great to check in um, a little bit in advance and say, you know, if there's a way you can say, listen, I know you normally need to process a little bit, but there's some things I really need to say right now. Would it be okay if I said my piece and you just listen and you come back with your answer at a later time? Like, see if there could be a compromise like that. Or sometimes the person who has a lot of feelings or thoughts to get out right away that's another time that maybe you can turn to journaling and you write down all your thoughts and feelings. So you're getting it out right in that moment still. And then you have it written down, you know, to show the other person when they're ready to come back to it. Also, a lot of times, you know, in relationships, you know, I think sort of the mononormative culture tells us that our partner is supposed to be, you know, our best friend and our everything in addition to our partner. But really, we need to have you know, multiple connections in our life. And it's a really good idea if you have a trusted friend or two that you can do some processing and some sharing and some venting. Uh, because sometimes some of the stuff that you need to get out, it doesn't necessarily need to be said to your partner. Sometimes you just need to talk about your own experience and be heard. So of course, you're going to want to decide what you do and don't want to share and where the lines of privacy are. But sometimes giving your partner some space and calling up a friend, you know, or meeting them somewhere and getting to vent to them, sometimes that, you know, can still serve the same purpose of letting you get your feelings out, but doing it in a way where your partner isn't necessarily the one who has to process it with you right in that moment. Definitely. And I've noticed something else as well is... A lot of times what goes with the submissive mindset, especially if the person in question is a submissive cisgendered female, is feeling guilty, feeling like a burden, you know, just feeling like sharing their emotions and their feelings about a particular experience are overbearing on their partner. Um, and obviously, logically, that's probably not the case, but do you have any tools for people who are S-types who kind of have that mode of thinking to kind of get around that and to be able to encourage themselves to share their feelings honestly and completely. I know we've already talked about um, journaling, but being able to have that honesty in a face-to-face -face conversation and not feeling um, burdensome and, and guilty that they're, you know, quote-unquote, oversharing their thoughts or burdening their partner. Yeah, that's sort of akin to you know, topping from the bottom or any of those other ways we shut people down. I think any of the language around that, telling someone that they are too much or too intense or too anything, I really don't believe in any of that. Um, those are all tools that we use to shut someone down. You know, the fact that we even have the term needy, you know, I think that that is a way of shutting people down and, and wanting them to not have needs because it's inconvenient. Um, and so that's, I think, yeah, another one of those ways where it can either be a mismatch, you know, between the people or an opportunity for someone to do some learning around, you know, their partner getting to have needs and express themselves in whatever way feels natural and important for them. Um, I think, you know, when people fall on the submissive side of things, they think that they are not supposed to take up space. Um, and I think that that can be really harmful or really damaging um, the educator Melina Williams does some great work around this, you know, when she's doing her talks and talking about the ways in which she takes up a lot of space and is very loud. And, and yet that is all still, you know, with her, within her dynamic and she's on the S side of that. And it doesn't mean that she has to make herself any smaller. I mean, the reason that it's power exchange is because both people have power and one person is choosing to give it to the other person. It doesn't mean that that person is smaller somehow to begin with. You don't have to take up as little space as possible in order to be submissive. That's not what being submissive means, although um, I, I definitely can understand where people might get that impression, especially from a lot of the uh, 
less thoughtful media out there that talks about BDSM um, without maybe a lot of uh, consideration for the reality of people who are actually submissive and the wide scope of personalities and, um, you know, personality traits that they happen to have. Um, so, um, switching gears a little bit, I would like to kind of go back to some of the thoughts I had at the beginning of our conversation, particularly around, um, using plain English communication in the scene and, and using safe words and how people establish that. And a lot of the issues the community seems to have had recently around, um, people, some people taking as much as they can out of a scene until they actually hear the word red or whatever the safe word is, but not hearing the very plain English communication of, you know, really, I can't breathe, you know, I'm having an asthma attack, you know, not listening to plain English communication. Um, I would really just like to hear your thoughts about that. And then, you know, if you have any uh, solutions or any sort of tools that maybe a dominant or a top could use to, to feel like they can hear plain English communication and not feel like that is taking away from them being the dominant or them being in control of the scene. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, this is one of those places where there are parallels between, you know, the kink and vanilla worlds. You mentioned at the beginning things about the Me Too movement. And I think one of the things that maybe people are starting to slowly see and learn there is that just doing things until you get a no really isn't the way to go. And it's the same thing in kink, you know, just going until you get a safe word. You know, that is not it's not the best way to have a successful scene for everybody involved. And I think that when you're doing these things, you need to be educated, not just in sort of the physical skill of the thing that you are doing, but in these other skills around empathy and around reading people and to do these things. Well, I think it's so important that we are, you know, looking at body language and looking at other feedback and that's part of why we need to get to know the people that we're playing with, some of which, you know, we ask questions in advance. You know, if you go silent, does that mean that's a problem or does that mean that you're in your happy place? And having asked those questions in advance so that when that happens in a scene, we can respond appropriately to what's going on there. Because some of the stuff that we're playing with is really powerful and people can forget that saying a safe word is an option. You know, if someone goes deep into subspace, you know, they're really into whatever's happening, they can forget that that's even a thing that they get to say. And not only that, but for all of the reasons that people don't always say no in sexual encounters, people often don't want to safe word in kink encounters. Uh, there is so much pressure to not let the other person down, to not disappoint them, you know, again, to like show how good you can be, that I think people will wait until it is absolutely dire before they use a safe word. And a lot of times that's already too late and it's already not going to be a successful or an enjoyable scene. Um, and again, I think when people think that it's taking away from their dynamic, if they're looking out for the other person's well-being, that is just sort of alarming to me. Um, I don't think that someone's agenda for what's going to happen in a scene should ever be more important than the bottom's well-being. And I see that all too often. I see that a lot in the rope communities where, you know, somebody is, you know, they're struggling or they're nauseous or something hurts and the top doesn't want to take them down because they haven't done that show-off thing that they wanted to do and wanted everybody to see them doing. And sort of their egos and their desire to show off is then taking precedent over over the other person's well-being. And I think that is just horrendous and inexcusable. And I think we see it again and again and again. And that's one of those reasons I think it's so important to watch how somebody plays before you decide to play with them. You know, if someone's playing in public spaces, if they're watching the audience more than they're watching their partner, that is not somebody that I would ever trust to play with me. Um, and that sort of thing, I think, just really needs to be considered and looked out for. Mm -hmm. Yes, I definitely agree. And especially when it comes to the rope community, 
there is a lot of issues there, and I'm sure there are people who are listening to this and going, uh, what do you mean uh, the rope community? Because they're not on FetLife or maybe don't follow uh, the online show- social experience of BDSM as, as much as some of us do. Um, so I don't mean to self-promote, but I will be having a conversation with Evie Vane, who is uh, a rope bottoming educator and we will be having a conversation about that if people want to know more about that situation specifically because I do think it is a really big deal and it deserves its own its own space and its own conversation absolutely her book is sitting on my desk for yes <laughs> yes I, I it's actually funny because I'm, I'm my name is also Evie obviously hi you guys are on my channel you probably know that um but it's just it's uh very interesting, and she's very well spoken, and it's such a blessing to have somebody who is a rope bottom teaching other rope bottoms. Yeah, that's a skill too, and I think that gets missed all too often. Yes, definitely, for sure. Being appreciated for being a bottom. Um, that's kind of why I have an issue with the term uh, submission is a gift, because uh, it's it's a skill. <laughs> You're not giving it away for free. <laughs> Um, it's not necessarily something, it's it's a gift in the sense it's something that maybe you're sharing with somebody, but it's not necessarily, it's a skill that's cultivated just as being a dominant and being able to act in a dominant fashion well is a skill that's cultivated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, so before we wrap up our conversation here, um, my my last thought that I would have, kind of continuing this this train of thought around um, people respecting safe words and in hearing plain English communication, is as a submissive, how if you are in that situation where you are having somebody who is not hearing your words and maybe you have negotiated to not use safe words. Um, what do you do? Like if, if you're in a, if you're in a situation where you've negotiated to not use safe words, but you're using plain English communication instead, and that's not being respected, how can you get yourself out of that situation? Cause I think a lot of times people get trapped or they're scared of, of escalating the situation because they don't want to make it worse for themselves. They don't want to get a bad reputation. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to offend the other person for some reason. Like you're, overly concerned with the other person's well-being and what they're going to think about the situation. Um, what can people do to get themselves out of of that and and be encouraged to take their own autonomy back when they're not being respected? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's sort of one of those areas where what you were just talking about, you know, cultivating bottoming as a skill I think this is one of those skills that you have to learn and practice. First of all, the self-awareness to know what's going on with your body and, and when your actual stopping points are. For one thing, knowing the difference between the kind of discomfort that it's okay to push through and the kind that really means that you need to stop right away. And although I know how difficult this is really for everybody and certainly for people who identify on the more submissive side of things, you know, saying no or stop is hard for everyone, but doing whatever you can do to practice that. There's a number of exercises you can do to practice that, but have that be one of the skill sets that you're cultivating as the skills that you're cultivating as a bottom. Get get as comfortable as you possibly can with saying no, um, because when you're in a scene, you need to be able to do that to protect yourself. Um, and any any top worth, worth their salt will want to know when you're not doing well and doesn't want to be doing things that you're not enjoying. I mean, if somebody is intending to go past what you want or what you enjoy, that's not being a bad top. I mean, that's breaking consent. That's being a predator. So those people, you know, are that's not whose feelings you need to be looking out for. Someone who isn't interested in respecting your no is not someone who you need to be coddling or protecting. Um, so I think that's one of those areas where you need to see if, is it not stopping because you haven't been clear enough? Um, so think about the words that you're using, like, you know, some of the examples you gave before, like, oh gosh, that doesn't, you know, feel great, or I'm having a hard time. You know, if they're not stopping at that, it, it's possible that they're just not interpreting that as, as serious as you intend it. Um, 
so try going through your different words. I mean, try saying just really bluntly, I need you to stop right now. Um, if you're playing, I mean, this is one of the great things about playing in a public space until you know someone really well is there are, you know, house safe words for the different dungeons and spaces. There could be DMs, there could be party hosts, even just other players. Um, if they're not interpreting no and stop as, as house safe words, because sometimes, you know, like you said, people um, sometimes play with those on purpose, you know, run through the things that are often a house safe word, like red or like the actual word safe word. Um, and somebody else will come and, and help you out and stop that. Um, but I think it's absolutely essential that you not be playing with somebody in private until you know that they will stop when you need them to stop. And it's not a bad thing to test when you are playing in public with someone for the first time. See what happens if you ask them to stop a particular activity or to modify what they're doing. Because if they don't respect that, then you certainly never want to do something even riskier or even more private with that person. Why playing in public, if at all possible, is very important. I think, you know, you're not uh, assuring your safety by doing that, but you're sure making it a heck of a lot easier to be safe when you've got 30 other people in the room with you. Um, and especially if they're, you're in a room with people whose job it is specifically to monitor other people's scenes. That's what dungeon monitors are for. Uh, so did you have any last thoughts you would want to add to wrap up this conversation? Um, I mean, I think just on the same point we were just on, you know, advocating for your needs, whether it's your safety within a kink scene or your emotional needs, don't let anyone shame you for that. Any, any of the terms that we've talked about from topping to the bottom to saying you're too much to saying you're too loud, calling you needy, um, anybody, anytime someone makes you feel bad for speaking up for yourself, um, that's a, a problem with them and not a problem with you. Um, and being able to speak up for yourself is an essential skill if you're going to play with kink and BDSM. Um, so go ahead and keep cultivating that and don't let anyone shut you down. Yes, that is. I actively encourage anybody who's listening to this, even dominance, but especially submissives, learn how to speak up for yourself. Do not assume that somebody else is going to be able to do it for you, that somebody else is going to hear you going, um, but could we stop maybe? Or whatever very polite phrase that you have learned up to this point may work for you. Just learn how to be strong in yourself without having to worry about being too loud or too much or obnoxious or needy or bratty or clingy or any of those terms that we use to shut people down. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think now is probably a good time to wrap it up. So thank you so much for being on Stella and thank you for having this conversation with me. I definitely think communication, if you don't have that, <laughs> you know, that's just the most basic place to start with kink and it's so so important to learn and continually grow and so again thank you uh, did you have any any links or places where people can contact you and find more from you that you wanted to share yeah absolutely um you can find me all around the internet you can check out uh, my website uh, stellaharris.net twitter at stella erotica instagram stella harris erotica and i'm on fetlife as stella starlight uh, I'll be teaching at Kinkfest and um, a bunch of other stuff around town and across the country. And I've also got the communication book coming out from Cleus Press this September. It's called Tongue Tied, Untangling Communication in Sex, Kink, and Relationships. And thank you so much for having yes, me today. Yes, thank you for being on again. I am absolutely picking that book up as soon as it's available in September. It's a bit of a ways away, uh, but good to have on a wish list <laughs> for sure. S save it on my wish list for when it comes out. All right. Uh, so if you guys are looking to keep listening to this interview series, I will link a playlist down below where if you have not caught up yet, you can see all of the interviews that I have done and that I will do. Um, again, both Stella and I will be at KinkFest. Uh, so if you guys want to learn more about KinkFest, check out the classes that everybody is going to teach, learn more about the event. I will put links to all of the KinkFest information down below. It is not too late to buy tickets yet, I believe, unless you're watching this, obviously, after 
the event has happened, in which case I'm sorry, come back next year. Uh, but with that, I will just, yeah, just come back. If you missed it in 2018, 2019, 2020, I'm sure they will keep going it as long as Portland is a city and probably thereafter. Uh, but yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Again, links to everything will be down in the description below. If you want to find more from me and keep listening to this interview series, there'll be a playlist. You can also subscribe to my channel. And thank you once again for Stella for being here.